0: Evidence and Answers. Many people are claiming that the Bible is not true. In fact, they make it sound that even the Gospels are not written by the disciples. So what do we make of this? How are we to counter these skeptics? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on the show, Pat will share what critics are saying about the Gospels, and he will dispel their inaccuracies. Here with part one of this informative study is our host, Pat
1: Zucaran. One of the criticisms we often hear today is that the Jesus taught in the churches today is not the Jesus of history. There's a popular idea being presented today that the historical Jesus is not the same Jesus that is being presented in the New Testament, particularly in Paul's letters and in the church today. These proponents point to alleged contradictions and errors in the New Testament, the Gospels in particular. Some of the most challenging arguments come from men who once served or currently served in ministry, but through their years of research have become disillusioned with the Bible and have either left the ministry or have become agnostic or skeptical of the Christian faith. After studying several of their websites and reading their material, I've chosen some of the most popular criticisms. And we'll address these issues on this segment of our show. Let's take a look at our first argument presented by the critics. And this is one of the most popular I'm beginning to see in the literature criticizing the Gospels in the New Testament today. The first argument is that the Gospels are forgeries. We do not know who the authors are, for the original documents did not identify who the authors actually were. They were written anonymously. Well, it is true that in the earliest documents, the names of the authors of the Gospels are not included. When it comes to the early manuscripts, though, we have thousands of New Testament manuscripts, some dating as early as the 2nd century A.D. We also have the writings of the early church fathers who quote all of the Gospels. Uh, Many of these writers are writing as early as the late 1st century A.D., Now, if we did not know who the authors were, we would expect to find various names as the authors of these documents. And we would expect to find the church fathers and the early writings and these early manuscripts attributing the Gospels to various different authors. We would have many different names presented as the authors of these Gospels. However, from the earliest manuscripts and the earliest traditions, they are consistent all the way through. No other authors are named besides Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So think about it now. If we did not know who the gospel writers were, in these early manuscripts and in the writings of the early church fathers, they would have attributed to a host of different names and authors. However, the fact that from the earliest documents we have in the earliest writings of the church fathers, they all consistently point out the same authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is evidence that indeed we did know who the writers of these Gospels were. Now, how far back, though, does the tradition of these authors go? Well, at least to the late 2nd century, and that would be very early testimony here, upholding that indeed Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the original authors of these Gospels. Irenaeus, writing in the late 2nd century, attributes these Gospels to have been written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Eusebius, a 4th century historian, writes about Papias, the bishop of Hierapolis. Papias lived about 70 to 163 AD, and he reports Mark as Peter's interpreter. Matthew writes in a Hebrew dialect and in the Hebrew context. And Luke writes his gospel and Acts and John his gospel. So we have very early testimony as to who the authors of these gospels are. Now, let's consider the alternative model here. Let's just suppose we did not know who these authors are and we could select anyone we want as the authors of these gospels who would be the best choice for an author of these books well if the early church could select anyone the choice would have been someone very prominent who would raise the credibility of these books however that's not what we have here the authors of these books probably are not the first round picks if you wanted to select someone that's prominent and would raise the credibility of your writing. Matthew, although one of the 12 disciples, is a despised tax collector. Probably not the first choice of a guy you want attributed as the author to the first gospel. Mark and Luke would not be a likely choice either because they would not elevate the credibility of the books. Why would they pick someone obscure like Mark. Mark is not one of the twelve disciples, and little is known of Mark. And his credentials are not very impressive and do not build credibility. Mark is the one who abandoned Paul and Barnabas on their second mission trip, and he later caused the split between Paul and Barnabas. Well, some argue that Mark was associated with Peter, so it's actually Peter's work. Well, if that's the case, then Why would the early church not put Peter's name on it? Peter is a much more prominent figure who would raise the status of the book. But instead, they select this obscure figure, the little-known Mark, and name him as the author of the gospel. Luke would hardly be a first-round candidate as well. Luke is a Gentile. He was not one of the twelve. If the early church did not know who the authors were it is likely they would have chosen better, more prominent figures like Peter or Thomas or James or Barnabas or Apollos or Silas, Timothy, or others who are more prominent and more well-known. These authors that are selected here would not lift the credibility of the Gospels. But the reason these authors are chosen most likely is that the ancient fathers knew who the authors were and were careful to identify them. Therefore, we have a good case, the historical evidence does build a good case that indeed the authors of the four Gospels are indeed Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Here's the second argument posed by the critics, and we hear a lot of this from the Muslim community as well, which denies the deity or divinity of Jesus Christ. And the second argument is this, the deity of Christ is not taught in the first three Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke but only in the last Gospel of John. Critics allege that nowhere in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke does Jesus claim to be the unique divine Son of God. In fact, one of the accounts often highlighted is Mark chapter 10, the story of the rich young ruler. This wealthy man comes to Jesus and asks him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replies, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Critics here point out that Jesus took offense at the mere thought that he might be considered to have the same righteousness as God, thus denying that he is indeed equal with God in nature and that he is the divine Son of God. Critics allege that he is shown making the same point in Luke chapter 18, verse 19 and Matthew 19, verse 17. Well, it is true that the strongest proclamation of Christ's divinity are found in the book of John. However, Jesus' claims to be the divine Son of God are also pronounced in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, first, it is important to understand the framework, the theological framework of the Gospels. Each of the Gospels begin with a thesis statement or the main point the writer is presenting and seeking to prove throughout the book. It then ends with a summary statement affirming the thesis of the writer. So this is the theological framework in which Matthew writes. Matthew begins with a proclamation that Jesus' name, Emmanuel, means God with us. He quotes from Isaiah saying, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is his opening thesis, which he proves throughout his gospel. So the gospel of Matthew begins with the omnipresent God who has come to earth to be with us. And it ends with the promise of Jesus saying to his disciples, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. So the gospel begins with God being ever present with us and ends with Jesus promising his intimate presence with us always. Emmanuel, God with us, he will always be with us because Jesus is the ever-present, omnipresent Son of God. That is the theological framework in which Matthew writes his gospel. So in that theological framework, Matthew is indeed proclaiming the deity of Jesus Christ. Let's take a look at Mark, which most scholars believe to be the earliest of the four Gospels, written no later than 60 A.D. Now, Mark opens with this opening proclamation. He states in chapter 1, verse 1, The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's his opening thesis, which he proves for the rest of his book. And it ends with the confession of the Roman centurion standing at the cross looking at Christ, proclaiming, truly this man was God's son. So Mark begins with his declaration that Jesus is God's son and everything in between is to be read in light of that belief that Jesus was no mere man. He was indeed the unique son of God. And it ends with a proclamation from that Roman centurion, truly this man was God's son. So from beginning to end, Mark presents Jesus as the unique son of God. Luke's thesis is presented in chapter 1, verse 35, with the angel declaring to the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God of God. Luke presents Jesus as a man, but someone with supernatural origin and a man with a supernatural destiny. From that point on in Luke's gospel, he is presenting his case for his thesis that indeed Jesus is the son of God. And Luke concludes with Jesus' answer to his accusers at his trial. They asked Jesus, are you the son of God then? And Jesus answered them, you say that I am. So when Jesus' accusers directly ask him, Are you the Son of God? Jesus gives an affirmation that he is indeed the divine Son of God. So when you understand the framework of the Gospels, the reader can see how the author's intent is to reveal that indeed Jesus Christ is the divine Son of God. Now, another important aspect to point out is that throughout the Gospels, Jesus claims authority that belongs only to God. For example, in Mark chapter two, as Jesus is teaching in Capernaum, people bring to him a paralyzed paralytic upon a stretcher. And it says in verse five, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins? but God alone. Now, the skeptics there looking at Jesus were thinking the right thing. The only one who has authority to forgive sins is indeed God alone. No one else has that kind of authority. The Lord says in Isaiah 43 verse 25, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and will not remember your sins. So indeed, the skeptics were right. Only God we never saw anything like this. Here, Jesus rightly affirms their allegation. They stated, No one has the authority to forgive sins but God alone. And Jesus affirms then and says, That is correct. But that you may know that I have the same authority as God because I am the divine Son of God. He said, I will confirm it with an act of God, a miracle. And so he heals the man instantly, and the man gets up, rises, and goes home. God affirms his message and messengers with miracles. God will not affirm false teaching with acts of God. So Jesus here, doing a miracle, indeed affirms that his words are true, that he has the authority to forgive sins, the authority only God has, because Jesus Christ is indeed the divine Son of God, the Son of God equal in nature to God. Another evidence of the deity of Christ is that Jesus accepted worship. That's very important because according to one of the Ten Commandments, it is clearly stated, You shall worship the Lord your God and Him alone. Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus was tempted in the desert, Saint offered Him the kingdoms of the world. If Christ would worship Him and Jesus once again quoted the Old Testament law saying, You shall worship the Lord your God and him alone. Jesus understood and the Jews understood that worship belonged to God and God alone. Yet, throughout the Gospels, people worship Jesus Christ and he receives their worship. He doesn't rebuke them or tell them to stop doing that. He receives their worship. For example, in Matthew chapter 2, even when he was a child, the wise men came to Jesus And it states in verse 11, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And in other places throughout the Gospels, the disciples worship him. In Matthew chapter 14, when Jesus walks upon the water and then calms the storm, when he gets into the boat, in verse 33 it states, Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, You are the Son of God. Again, in Matthew chapter 28, after the resurrection, it states, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. So several times throughout the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, people worship Jesus, and he receives their worship. The Greek word there is proskuneo, It's the same word used of the worship of God. There are several more examples we could go through, but time does not allow us to cover all the examples. But let me point out to you the title, Son of God. That is another revelation of the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, the title, Son of God, some mistakenly understand this term to mean that Christ is somehow the offspring of God and therefore inferior to God. The term Son of can mean and offspring but here there's a greater meaning to that word it is used here to mean in the order of this phrase is used many times in the old testament for example the phrase son of the prophets means of the order of the prophets it's used this way in passages like first kings chapter 20 verse 35 sons of the singers meant of the order of the singers as seen in nehemiah 12:28 So, the phrase the Son of God means of the order of God, revealing the divine nature of Christ. So, when that term Son of God is used, it's pointing to the divinity and divine nature of Jesus Christ. Now, finally, in Matthew chapter 26, this is one of the most direct confessions of Christ's deity. In Matthew 26, Jesus is asked directly by the high priest Caiaphas, Are you the Son of God? And Jesus answered, You have said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So Jesus not only answered in the affirmative, he quotes the Messianic passage from Daniel chapter 7. Now Daniel's vision also revealed here that the Son of Man was to be more than human. In the other Old Testament writings, the image of one riding on the clouds was used exclusively for divine figures. Exodus 14, verse 20, 34, verse 5, Numbers 10, 34, Psalm 104, 3, Isaiah 19:1. Whenever someone is riding on the clouds, that is a heavenly divine being. And Daniel employed this image and Jesus embraced it as his own. For example, Isaiah nineteen one says, See the Lord rides on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. Here the Lord rides on the clouds. Psalm four three states, And lays the beams of His upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds His chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. And that there, of course, is speaking of the Lord God. So here when Jesus quotes from Daniel chapter 7, Speaking of the Son of Man, his favorite title, seated at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of heaven, he's quoting Daniel, and in that Daniel chapter, if you read it, it is talking about a divine figure. So here Jesus not only affirms, answers affirmatively, the question of Caiaphas, he further expounds on that, quoting Daniel chapter 7, further declaring his divinity and divine nature. Jesus then made an even more staggering claim when he said that he, as a divine human figure with all judgment and authority, would be seen sitting at the right hand of God, the right hand of power. This imagery was not unfamiliar to the Jewish council, which was intimately familiar with the Psalms. Jesus is quoting Psalm 110, which states, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Until I make your enemies your footstool. That Jesus would apply this text to himself, therefore, is very astonishing. Only a few significant figures in Judaism ever entered into God's presence. Even fewer sat in it. But up to this point, no one in Jewish literature was ever afforded the privilege of sitting at God's right hand. Yet Jesus personally insisted on his right to do so further affirming his claim to be the divine Son of God. Now, as I conclude my case, you may still be asking, why didn't Jesus directly and explicitly state he was God in the flesh? Well, understand the Jews at this time are strict monotheists. And although there is evidence of the Trinity in the Old Testament, the doctrine was not clearly taught in Judaism. Therefore, Jesus wanted to avoid the confusion or the error of modalism. He did not want the Jews thinking, He is God the Father. Therefore, as New Testament scholar R.T. France states, it was such shocking language that even when the beliefs underlying it were firmly established, it was easier and perhaps more politic to express these beliefs in less direct terms. So Jesus was introducing a doctrine that was unfamiliar to the Jewish culture at that time, the doctrine of the Trinity. And he didn't want his hearers to make that mistake thinking he was saying he is God the Father. Therefore, he had to be a little more strategic in how he presented himself being the divine Son of God. Now, addressing that passage, which our skeptic friend pointed out in Mark chapter 10, when the young man asked Jesus, good teacher, and Jesus replied, why do you call me good? No one is good but God. Jesus was not denying his deity in this passage. Jesus was trying to point out certain things. First, when the man used the term good, he was measuring good by human standards. For the passage states that he believed he was good, that he had kept all of God's commands since he was a child. However, Jesus replied, Why do you call me good? Only God is good. Showing the man the standard of goodness that leads to eternal life is God's standard of perfection, not man's standard. Second, Jesus' response did not deny his deity, but was a subtle way of helping the rich man understand who Jesus really was and the true nature of Christ. The man called Jesus good, but if only God is good, by calling Jesus good, he needed to realize who he was talking to. If only God is good and he was calling Jesus good, then Jesus was saying he is God incarnate. Therefore, instead of rejecting his deity, this was a subtle way in which he wanted the man himself to realize that Jesus was indeed the divine Son of God. So Jesus wasn't rejecting his divinity. He was presenting it in a veiled way to this young man. Well, here are just a few answers to the many skeptics' challenges regarding the authority of Christ and the Bible. For more answers to the skeptics' challenges, you can go to my website, evidenceandanswers.org, and listen to the show and read the articles that are there answering some of the toughest challenges presented by skeptics today. Thank you for being with us today, and I hope you'll join me again when I answer some more of the toughest challenges presented by the skeptics today here on Evidence and Answers. We'll see you next time.
0: Thank you for joining us here on Evidence & Answers Radio Broadcast. Be sure to join us next time for the continuation of this exciting show. If you find this broadcast to be a blessing, please consider partnering with us. Evidence & Answers relies on generous donations from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll also find there on our website a wide variety of resources available to you including audio and exciting articles. Evidence & Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit their website. That's hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence & Answers.